It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 13. As we come to the end of this letter, the end of our sermon series, if you do not have a Bible, hopefully there should be one beside you or underneath the, the seat in front of you. We refer to that as our pew Bible, and if you do not own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. I am thankful to be able to have this opportunity. Um, Coming off of Thanksgiving, to focus our attention on the benediction, the the blessing, the prayer given by the author to this letter. And I was thinking as we were worshiping our one true God in adoration and thanksgiving even this morning, um, there are some who, who have made it here this morning who come from um, not, a, not an experience of uh, circumstantially a lot of thanksgiving, thankfulness. It may be that you entered in this last week with a lot of hurt, trials of various kinds. When we c- collectively, corporately come together on the Lord's Day, we as the body of Christ can proclaim Regardless of circumstance, maybe the Lord has given, maybe the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And to have Christ as our focus once again this morning allows anybody in Christ, the body of Christ, believers, to have a heart of thankfulness regardless of what has transpired in our lives as of late. Please follow along as I read, starting in verse 18 and finishing out the end of chapter 13. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in Prayerfully considering how to bring this letter, this sermon series to a close, I actually uh, want to help us look at this benediction, verses 20 and 21, um, through the lens of preparing us for the Lord's Supper. So here at Grace Covenant Church, we gladly and joyfully celebrate this ordinance that the Lord has given us, the Lord's Supper, every Lord's Day. And so, as we look at verses 20 and 21, I want us to be thinking, 
how this prepares our minds and our hearts to gather and partake of the Lord's Supper. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a good question to ask, what are we doing? And there are four points, ideas, that I want to present to us by way of working through this passage. First, we as Christians, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, are declaring as believers our faith in Christ, the one that we rest in solely. So, when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are declaring that he alone, Christ Jesus alone, is the remedy for our sins. We look nowhere else but Christ and Christ alone as, as the one we rest in, as the one we find refuge in. Take John chapter 3, for example, verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, this is gloriously good news. We are not condemned because of what the Son has accomplished on behalf of sinners like you and like me. There's a phrase in our passage. I want you to be looking at verses 20 and 21. In verse 20, there's this phrase, by the blood of the eternal covenant. All the phrases packed in, inspired by the Spirit of God, that the author wrote in these two verses are, are, are all important. He begins, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. That phrase I want us to think about for just a moment. Christ shed his precious blood in fulfillment of the terms of the everlasting covenant. Maybe for some that's, a, that's an odd phrase. The everlasting or eternal covenant of redemption. But in order to understand God's glorious plan of redemption that has unfolded from the beginning of Genesis through Revelation and continues even to this day as he is gathering a people unto himself, what happened before the foundation of the world helps us understand why the good news is such good news. God the Father entered into covenant with the Son that he would send his son on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost. This was before the foundation of the world. God, in his omniscience, all-knowing, all-powerful, gracious and loving God that he is, made a covenant with his son, knowing that the fall would occur and there would be a great need of redemption. This covenant was made, and it was made pointing towards what would have to happen by the Son, the shedding of his blood, 
the laying down of his life. And so Christ shed his precious blood in fulfillment of the terms of the everlasting covenant, that agreement which he entered into with the Father before the foundation of the world. There is a threefold force that I want you to hear from our passage that all hinges on by the blood of the eternal covenant. It is through the blood which he shed for sinners like you and like me that Christ became the the chief shepherd. It was by or through the blood that he became the shepherd of the sheep. Now, he was previously uh, ordained to be the great shepherd, but it was actually realized when he obtained his people by shedding his blood. And so when you think about the cross and you think, okay, what actually happened? Was it just that Christ died and opened up this door for the possibility that some might come to him? That is not what we see in God's word. Acts chapter 20, for example, it was the shedding of his blood that obtained a people for himself. He actually died for the sins of his own. Another way to say this is God elected a people for himself before the foundation of the world and that eternal covenant that was made between God the Father and God the Son was executed It was effectual when Christ shed his blood. It actually accomplished something. This brings so much hope and assurance to a believer that has received Christ by faith to know that it's not one day I'm in, if I act a certain way, the other day I'm out. No, 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 no. He has obtained the sheep by his own blood. And so when you get to John chapter 10, for example, that no one will pluck you out of the Father's hand and the Son's hand, that starts to reveal the reality of who it is that holds us fast. There is great assurance of faith in those who are secure in Christ. And it's all hinging on the blood. By the blood of the eternal covenant, all of this can be true for us. So when we come to the table, we're declaring as Christians our faith in Christ. We rest in him. He is the only remedy for our sins. The second kind of force of that phrase, it was through or because of the blood of Christ that God raised Christ from the dead. So the the resurrection hinges on his blood being shed. Because in the shedding of his blood, God's wrath was fully satisfied. Divine justice was made at Calvary's cross. And so when we see the resurrection of Christ, it is ringing true this reality. That sin and death have actually been defeated. As Brandon led us so well in the Lord's Supper in that phrase, it is finished. When Christ uttered those words, by the blood, we know that as he was raised on the third day, it is actually done. There's no longer work on our part to make us right with a holy and just God. He has accomplished it all for us. 
And then thirdly, the threefold force of this phrase, by the blood of the covenant, it was through or by virtue of the blood of Christ that God became, this phrase that you see in verse 20, God of peace. That, that title for God is really important for us to wrap our minds around and our hearts around. In God's infinite wisdom, he refers to himself with different titles throughout Scripture. And it is so important for us to remember that this title, the God of peace, is not towards all mankind. God is not the God of peace for all humanity. It is not general, but it is in relation to his people. And it is only by the blood that it is possible for God who is judge to also be the God of peace for his own. So here's a little illustration that I found helpful. Jim Walton was translating the New Testament to a very small people group in the jungles of Colombia. And he was troubled as he was translating the New Testament in finding a word in their, the, the Munain people's language for peace. He could not figure out what word to use as he's translating God's word for peace. And this story that happened and God's providence kind of unlocked it for him. So this is what was going on. There was a village chief of, amongst these people named Fernando. And it was promised to this chief that he would be given a 20-minute plane ride by planes that would come in and drop off supplies in, in lieu of him having to do a three-day walk. So obviously, once he understood that this plane ride is going to get him there in a very short amount of time, he was very excited. Well, the day that it was supposed to happen, he's waiting. The plane does not arrive. Obviously, he is irked at this point. The chief begins the three-day trek. Then a little while later, the plane arrives. And so someone, part of the tribe, they send a runner to go and retrieve the chief before he gets too far down the road. He brings him back. By the time they get back, the plane's gone. So Chief Fernando is hot at this moment. And what's interesting is Jim records the audio of this rant of the chief when he gets back. He just goes off on all the people, and Jim is listening to this. And so he has it recorded he goes back and he is listening to the recording over and over again. And he discovered that the chief kept re repeating a phrase, I don't have one heart. He kept saying, I don't have one heart. So Jim asked other villagers what having one heart meant. And he found out it was like saying, there is nothing between me and the other person. If you have one heart, there's nothing in between us. And the chief saying, I don't have one heart. That's when Jim Walton realized that was the word, the phrase that he needed to use to translate the word peace in their language. To have peace with God means that there is nothing, no sin, no guilt, no condemnation that separates us. 
We have one heart. If you are outside of Christ and you have not experienced the benefit of his blood being shed for your sins, you are like the chief. I don't have one heart with God. But praise be to God, we hear a passage like Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do you have one heart with God today? A.W. Pink writes this, Nothing will impart more confidence and enlarge the hearts of Christians more than the realization that God has laid aside his wrath and has only thoughts of grace towards us. Nothing will inspire more liberty, liberty of spirit, than to look upon God as reconciled to us by Jesus Christ. I want to, by way of reminder, in Hebrews chapter 8, we heard a lot about the new covenant. The substance of the new covenant, remember what it is. Three blessings. The law of God would be written on our hearts and on our minds. There would actually be a personal and saving knowledge relationship with God. And there would be the forgiveness of sins, which God would declare would be a reality for all of his people. The new covenant is made possible by the shedding of the blood. So, as we look to the Lord's Supper, first we are declaring as Christians our faith is in Christ. He is the only remedy for our sins. Number two, we are declaring our membership in Christ's body. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are corporately declaring that we belong to the body of Christ. You may ask, Maybe you've experienced the Lord's Supper happen in different ways, in different places. Why don't we just take the Lord's Supper at home? Why don't we just take it as a family in our living room? Why do we do it gathered corporately? Because it is a reminder that Christ is the head, and by the shedding of his blood, he actually purchased a people, the body, that when we come together, we're joyfully, collectively, corporately identifying ourselves with the one who has redeemed us. Not individualistic Christianity where I kind of do my own thing off to the side. No, no, no. He laid down his life for his sheep, for his people. And so we gather and we obediently partake of the Lord's Supper until he comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And what we have seen 
through this letter to the Hebrews, again and again is this beginning phrase, let us, let us, not you go and do and you go and do, it's let us. And so I want to I remind us of a few of the things that we've been exhorted throughout this letter. Some things that the author has exhorted us to do. Here's a small sampling. We must, let us, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We are told to hold fast to our confidence in Christ. Let us take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is as not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us continue in brotherly love. It would be extremely easy, friends, to throw up our hands in the air and give up shouting loudly, I can't do this. It's too much for me. I'm too weak. I'm too frail. I'm too selfish. And our author, inspired by the Spirit of God, knows that. That's why verses 20 and 21 are so incredibly encouraging and uplifting. These two verses tell us that God knows this about his people. That's why he reminds us here that whatever he has required of us in the letter to the Hebrews, he provides. In his spiritual autobiography entitled The Confessions, Augustine says to God, command what you will and give what you command. I think we actually see this playing out in Hebrews uh, 13, 20, and 21. Whatever God commands us to do, he will provide the power, the motivation, the fuel to walk that out. So as we look at partaking of the Lord's Supper, the third thing that I want us to remember as we're thinking about what it is that we are actually proclaiming, what are we thinking about, we are declaring, thirdly, our union with Christ. And this is going to tie into why we do it corporately, remembering that we are the body of Christ. By the Holy Spirit... And through faith, by virtue of which believers partake of the saving benefits of Christ, we are in union with him. Jesus saves us 
by uniting us to himself. And so when we read that he is the great shepherd of the sheep, through our great shepherd, God equips us with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So the shepherd feeds his sheep. The shepherd rules his sheep. The shepherd instructs his sheep. We think of the words, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And please hear this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is huge when we think about all the exhortations that we have heard in this letter. And then remember, even as we come to the Lord's Supper, that our union in Christ is, as Brandon reminded us in adult Sunday school, it is the fuel, the fuel to follow, the fuel to obey comes from God. You, you don't pull up the boots by the bootstraps in your own strength and think, I'm going to just trudge along and, and do this in my own strength. Not at all. You will fall flat and you won't be doing it to God's glory. But recognizing that we are in complete dependence upon him for everything. He is getting all the glory when we are crying out, this is too much for me, please help. When we take of the Lord's Supper, we remember his death until he comes. We remember as his people that he, through even this ordinance, sustains, encourages, encourages us, and, and builds us up as his people. There is transformative power because of our union with Christ. There's actually anticipation when you come on the Lord's Day to sit under the word when you come on the Lord's day to partake of the Lord's Supper, the, the means of grace that God has given his people are the delivery system God himself has instituted to bring grace to his people. Not a salvific grace, but a sustaining, empowering grace. It is spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual help, spiritual fortitude, spiritual blessings to needy souls like us as we seek to obey God's word. Charles Simeon, writing on this passage, charged his people by saying, let your labor be for every good work. Your rule, his revealed will. Your delight, whatsoever is pleasing in his sight. And if you hear that and you're going, I want that, but I don't have that. That my labor would be for every good work of his. My rule of life would be his revealed will. My delight would be whatsoever is pleasing to him is what I strive to be about. Brothers and sisters, there's encouragement here. Listen to the passage again. God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And so, fourthly, when we come to the Lord's table, 
we are declaring our hope in Christ. I want to read from John 6 and then just make a few notes about this particular passage as it relates to the hope that we have in Christ. This is from John chapter 6. Hear from the, the words of our Lord Jesus. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So just a few, few thoughts. When we come to the Lord's table, we are declaring this hope in Christ and Christ alone. He promised that all who come to him would be saved. He promised that he would not lose any of those whom the Father has given to him. Think about the great shepherd of the sheep. What great hope to know that if he has called you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He promised to grant his people eternal life. The benefits of the gospel, you are justified by faith. You are sanctified by faith. You have had your sins washed away and you have been given the gift of eternal life. All of that breeds hope in the people of God. He promised to raise up his people on the last day. This prayer or this benediction shows the centrality of Christ's resurrection. It is the foundation of our faith. Of all the things the author could have brought up about Jesus, this is one in particular that he wants to shine forth as we hear from his word today. He's emphasizing that our Savior, our great high priest, is not one who lived for a period of time and then died. He forever lives and he forever intercedes for his own. And because he lives, Christ the firstfruits means we will also live in him. What glorious hope we have in Christ. These promises... In just a few minutes, as we hold the bread and the juice, the promises that are mentioned here are just as certain as those physical or visible elements before us. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are declaring as Christians our faith in Christ. We rest in Him and Him alone. We are declaring our membership in Christ's body we are declaring our union with Christ, and we are declaring our hope in Christ. I don't want you to miss this. Everything good that happens in your life as a believer is through the Son. 
the whole thrust of this letter has been saying over and over again in all different ways, Jesus is better. Seeing and savoring the supremacy of Christ has been the anthem of this author throughout this letter. Again, just a little sampling. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the final word of God in these last days. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth whom angels worship. He is the founder of our salvation who was made perfect through suffering. He is the one who became flesh that he might die in our place and free us from the fear of death. He is the one superior to Moses as a son is superior to a servant. He is our sympathetic high priest who opens the way to the throne of grace. He is the one who saves for all times those who draw near to God through him. He is the mediator of a new blood-bought covenant to secure that our sins will be forgiven and that the law will be written on our hearts and that God will be our God. He is the one who by his blood purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. He is the one who put an end to all sacrifices by putting away sin once and for all through the sacrifice of himself. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the one who suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. And he is the one who will never leave us nor forsake us, but will forever help us by the power of an indestructible life. He is the one that brings us much hope. He is the one that has given us life because of his atoning sacrifice. He is the eternal son of God who came to seek and save the lost. I pray that as we come to the close, this would this would help prepare our hearts and our minds to gather around the Lord's table, partaking of the Lord's Supper together corporately, all for God's glory and our good as we remember our Lord Jesus until he comes. So next steps, this is going to be a little bit different this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have the ser servers come forward so we're going to actually partake of the Lord's Supper before we sing. So I'm going to pray. We're going to have the servers come forward. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to sing together, and then I will close us in the benediction. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, the God of peace, may that glorious title weigh on us in a, in, a, in a new, profound way this morning as we think about those who are outside of Christ and how that relationship is not actually a reality unless, unless we have experienced the new birth 
repented of our sins and believed upon the one who shed his blood in order to make you the God of peace for your people. Father, there is so much here that brings joy and delight to us. All that the Son has accomplished on our behalf, the benefits of the gospel that we receive and enjoy, and then to know as you have called us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that you are the one that provides all that we need. Father, the means of grace, as we gather to sing, as we gather to hear your word proclaimed, as we gather to participate in the uh, ordinances, all of this you have, you have given your people to, to be the fuel, to be what nourishes our souls, builds us up, equips us, to actually fulfill what you've called us to be about. And in light of the blood being shed, we who fall miserably short of the glory of God know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us, to for, forgive us because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. May this well up inside of us with joy and praise and doxology as we respond to this letter that was written to the Hebrews that we have benefited so much by. And we pray all this in Christ's glorious name. Amen.